What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices, Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM, the Pacifica Network, and online at madnessradio.net. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Nina Packabush. Nina is a queer-identified grown-up teen mom. She's a young adult fiction writer, a zine maker, and a longtime mental health advocate. Uh, Nina is the author of the new young adult novel, Girls Like Me, published by Bedazzled Inc., and Nina is also the producer of Madness Radio. So welcome on the show, Nina Packabush. Great to be here, Will. Well, people who listen to Madness Radio are actually somewhat familiar with you because you've been a behind-the-scenes presence. You're the producer. You do the editing and the technical um, side of things with Madness Radio for a couple of years, taking over from Leah Harris. So I'm really excited to have you as a guest, finally. Um, I've known that your your book has been in the works for several years, and I've been looking forward to this, and we're finally getting you on the show. So welcome to Madness Radio as as a guest now. Thank you. I'm a lot more nervous as a guest than I am as the behind the scenes person. <laughs> well, is it, this is your first book, right? Yes, it is. I have to say, you know, I, I, I didn't know what to expect. I know you had written a book. I was excited to get it out there. And you sent me a copy of it. I started reading it. And I, I was really into it. I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, first of all, your your writing style is very clear. It's almost like watching a movie. So I found like I was very drawn in and very um, interested and compelled by the book. And then just the description, the experience of being in the psych hospitals and um, the whole world of being a queer teen mother and the obstacles and the challenges that the main character faces. It, it was really, really a great book. I'm really glad that you wrote this. And I'm especially glad that this book is is out there because there, there are um, so many people who don't have their experience reflected in the media and don't have books that talk about their experience. And as we're going to be talking about on the show today, being a teen parent as a queer is something that's not represented or discussed, but it's actually a lot more common than people realize. And there are very few books that really represent the psychiatric experience for young people in any kind of critical way. So I'm really glad that you wrote this book. And I just want to really appreciate you for that and also to invite people to get a copy of it. You'll you'll really enjoy it. So thank you very much. Yeah, that's that's why the main reason I wrote this book is we just don't see ourselves represented out there in any sort of media really, especially for teenagers. And so tell just give us a big don't give us any spoilers, but give us a synopsis of what the book's about so people kind of know what they're what they're uh, getting into. Well, the book is about a uh, 16-year-old uh, Banjo Logan, um, and she is. Uh, her mother was a teen mom, and her older sister was a teen mom. And Banjo identifies her mother is, is queer, um, and Banjo identifies as queer. So she never thought she was going to end up pregnant, and uh, she ends up getting pregnant by her gender queer partner. And unfortunately, her partner ends up um, taking their own life uh, the same day that. Banjo gets pregnant. And so it's the story of Banjo uh, coming to terms with the suicide. She ends up in the psych ward where um, she meets some other kids and for the first time in her life kind of feels like she fits in 
uh, try not to give any spoilers here. But anyways, it's the story of, of a teenager dealing with pregnancy, being queer, um, coming to terms with somebody close to them taking their own life and just like navigating life. That was one of the things that was beautiful for me reading your book. And one of the reasons I, I really appreciate you having written is it is it brought me back to my hospital days. And there was a lot of really vivid memories that came back. I really connected with some of the experiences. And if you, you haven't been in a psychiatric hospital or you don't know somebody who's been in, it's it's really kind of shocking the degrading and dehumanizing experiences that often happen to people, not always, but way too often. And there was another side of it that you really tuned me into, which I thought was just really beautiful. And so many people also have this experience. You go into this alienating place, this abusive and violent place, you really are, it's the one of the worst moments of your life. But then at the same time, you meet other patients and, you know, some of them you don't want to be around and some of them you have a really hard time with, but there's a few people that you really connect with. And that has happened to me when I've been in psych hospitals and in the psychiatric system. And it's also the basis of the peer support movement and the recovery movement and groups like Freedom Center and Icarus Project and all the different mutual support is that actually this terrible thing that has happened to us has actually allowed us to find each other. So it's a very, very dark read. There's a lot of painful stuff, but it's also a very bright and hopeful read as well because of that human connection. And that's a, a really beautiful message that even through this uh, oppressive, violent, abusive experiences that we can actually find our way out through finding each other. That, that's just beautiful. So I really want to thank you for writing, the, writing this book. Thank you. Yeah, that's one thing I really wanted to highlight in this book, like the whole friends make the best medicine sort of narrative, because it, that isn't given any credibility, uh, generally speaking. It's, you know, we need therapy, we need meds, we need, especially for teenagers. And nobody stops to think that maybe they just need people they can truly connect with. You know, the misfits of the world need other misfits, and suddenly they're not misfits anymore. And it's powerful. Which is also the message and the strategy of the queer liberation movement is by finding each other, that's how we get empowered and overcome our oppression and actually move forward and help make changes in society as also make changes in our own lives. And so is that really what motivated you to um, write the book? I mean, where did you get the inspiration from this? I mean, it sounds like a lot of this came from your own, your own, your own family and your own experience as, as, a, as a queer teen mom. Yeah, it did. Um, one thing I do want to say is um, the when you were saying the queer, you know, the queer pride movement and such, the mad pride movement also, like that was one of the things that helped me tremendously was finding other people who identified as mad or didn't identify as mad, but had a diagnosis and being like, wow, like there are other people out there and I respect and think they're amazing. And it's okay to be like who I am. And you know, I didn't have that as a teenager. How did you first connect with the Mad Pride movement? It's it's a long story. Um, back at, well, it was like 2003, so what, 14, 15 years ago. Um, I had some friends, and one of my friends ended up having um, going into an extreme state and ended up in a mental hospital in uh, Massachusetts. It was a terrible experience, and their partner was actually in Seattle, where I live and trying to get them out and finally got 
got her out of the hospital and brought her here to Seattle. And that was actually when you and I sort of almost crossed paths almost, because yeah. I was <laughs> I was part of the community in Massachusetts that was trying to help your friend in the hospital when all Cooley Dickinson Hospital when all this was happening and all these people were trying to get mobilized just to support them. So we sort of have yeah. this kind of destiny that's connected us. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild when you think about it. So she ended up coming here to Seattle, and that was a terrible a terrible idea. And so her partner um, decided to get her back to Massachusetts. And I was having I was hanging out with this person and our kids, and she was telling me the story. And I'm like, I'll I'll take her back. So I had a few hours notice, jumped on a plane with the person who was in the crisis, and um, was supposed to be in Massachusetts for 24 hours. It took us 24 hours to get to Massachusetts because of the last minute plane tickets and the layovers. And this person I was with within, was in an incredibly extreme state. And I had never experienced anything like that before. So got her back and realized I couldn't leave. There was no way I could leave this person in this state alone. And ended up staying for five days. And the only option that I knew about at the time was to take her back to the hospital, but not Cooley Dick's. So uh, ended up making arrangements to take her to a hospital about two hours away from where we were at. But in the meantime, her partner had been trying to find help. And all she could find was she said she had spoken to some uh, nice little punk boy named Sasha. But that's all she knew. And I should throw in that her partner, this, this person I was speaking to, was also going through some extreme states of her own, which I was not aware of at the time. But she was not able to give me any more information than that. And I tried and tried and tried to find who this Sasha was and couldn't and ended up having to take this, this person who was in crisis to the hospital and checking her in. And it was probably the most traumatic event of my life at that point. Like it was really, really intense. And, um, so you heard that there was this connection with this movement and Sasha, I'm imagining a Sasha de Brule and you almost were able to make that connection to the Mad Pride movement, but you didn't. And then your friend goes back into the hospital again. Yeah, she goes back into the hospital again. And um, basically, I, you know, cried all the way home, which was another 24 hour trip because it was another last minute ticket to get home. And uh, so then fast forward a couple of years and my own kid. And when I'm, I'm going to stop right here and say that my, my daughter is, has talked about her own experience and anything I share on here. I have permission because I don't believe in parents sharing their children's story as, you know, sensationalist sort of, oh, poor me kind of situation. So anyway, my daughter was going through some pretty extreme stuff and um, everyone was like, hospital, hospital, hospital. And I was like, I I can't, I can't do that. I, I know what it was like putting this other person in the hospital. So I started Googling and managed to land. I was like putting in things like, Sasha mental health and Sasha, you know, anything I could think of. And finally I landed on the Icarus project and started reading the boards. I did not participate in the boards at all. I just read because I felt like as a mom, I didn't, I knew a lot of people were being traumatized by their interactions with their families. And I was like, I don't want to come in here as this mom and seem like, you know, (laughs) I'm one of those people. So, so I just read and then at some point, probably about a year later, I saw a little link on the side to this thing called Madness Radio, and uh, I ended up downloading every episode and just binge listening to every episode on my iPod, um, and 
anyway, when I was able, because of Madness Radio and the Acres Project, literally kept my kid from going to the hospital. I, uh, at the same time, I had actually found the NAMI uh, family to family classes and joined that. Uh, the, how, let me let me ask you this: How hard was it to find NAMI on the internet? It was so easy to find NAMI. <laughs> Like I, it was probably, and I can't say this for sure, but I'm sure when I typed in Sasha mental health, NAMI was probably NAMI one of up. my first. Yeah, they're probably yeah. they're probably gaming that. Yeah. And I, I was so I was so excited when I found NAMI. Like I went to the meeting like so excited, and um, got my you know big notebook, which they, they would only give you like whatever section you were studying. You only got that section at a time. You, so you couldn't read ahead. We had to promise not to give the book to anyone, share our information because they felt that they needed, people couldn't just glean information from the book. They had to come to the classes. And, uh, and I started to notice that everyone there, their people were in really serious, seriously not doing well. Like everyone there whose partner, child, or, you know, brother, sister, parent, kid, whatever was, uh, in a hospital or in jail or living on the streets, or not working, and, you know, they were, like, making plans for their adult children, like, making uh, the directives for after they pass, so somebody could care for their adult child, and I was like, if this is what this help is going to give me, like, no thank you, and so I could look at, I was able to look at Icarus Project and go, wow, look at these people with the same diagnosis and going through the same thing, and I should throw in, um, I also had my own psychiatric history. I'd been diagnosed with major depression and ADHD, and then they started trying to give me the bipolar diagnosis. So I had been on meds that had not worked for me, that I was on Zoloft, and they had thought that that was, I started having such severe side effects, they tried to diagnose me with uh, MS, multiple sclerosis. From the side effects of the meds. Of, of, yeah, of Zoloft, and... uh, so, you know, I, and then I was on Wellbutrin, which I actually have to say, I love Wellbutrin. It triggered the most amazing manic episode in me. That Hey, my, my manic, <laughs> my, my manic episode on Prozac was, was memorable for sure. Yeah, so. <laughs> definitely some fun. So, uh, it's just, yeah. It's just short lived. That's the thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so, and one thing that we should say too, is that, you know, the hospital in Massachusetts, Cooley Dickinson Hospital, this is a relatively affluent area of Massachusetts. It's considered kind of maybe state-of-the-art mental health services. And at the same time, often these experiences are really, really horrible. And then if you write about them or talk about them or just describe what happened, people say, oh, no, that that's not, you're, you're exaggerating or that doesn't, that's not really how the system is. And, you know, that was maybe back in the days of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but not today. And the reality is that, yes, it does happen today and your book girls like me really captures the all those little small humiliations that we as patients go through when we're in those interviews or we're in that locked ward and the the impact that it has on people of just making you feel so much worse and so much more isolated and so i was really really struck by the book really capturing a, a lot of that as well as the positive side of of finding other people that you can connect with you know through this experience but um you, you really put us into that world of being a, a mental patient and being in a psychiatric hospital in very in a very vivid and powerful way 
Yeah, it's and I explore in the book, and then there's a sequel that I'm writing right now. But one of the things I explore is the trauma, that the residual trauma from being in that experience that my character Banjo experiences. Like, it makes it makes it pretty hard if if things happen to seek help because of the fear of of that happening again, and also just for my character Banjo. Um, that I try not to give away too many spoilers here, but the psychiatrist kind of threatening her, like you have to do this or, you know, the whole, the whole atmosphere is of threat and coercion and intimidation. That's what people don't realize. And we have a certain awareness in our culture that, you know, being kidnapped and being assaulted are very damaging, negative, bad things, but that's essentially what's happening in for psychiatric treatment in those, in those contexts. And you do describe a lot of, of, um, Banjo's experience around cutting and the way that she's misunderstood from the outside, but then the way that you describe her own thinking and her own emotions when she's cutting and what what it is that brings her to cutting, it was it was so helpful. I think to really um, go so deeply into that. And there's a lot of different experiences like that in the book where you're able to really go into the subjective side of what are what are really going on with these so-called psychiatric symptoms and especially the the cutting experiences really stand out for me so yeah that's one of the things i wanted to explore um regarding cutting is that uh cutting can be it can be a coping mechanism and you know a lot of times people freak out when they hear a teenager is cutting and think that they're suicidal or it has to be stopped right away and you know i'm thinking about kate bornstein's book uh, it's like a, i think it's called 101 alternatives to suicide um, that may not be the title, but I think it is. Um, and, and she talks about how cutting is, is, can be used as a tool to get through. Um, it freaks people out and it's, you know, not shiny and happy, but sometimes it's, it might be what a teenager uses to make it through those tough times. And, um, you talk about it along. You talk about it alongside smoking, which I think was an interesting connection to make. Smoking is a coping mechanism. You know, people smoke a lot of times to calm down or to take a breath, step it, outside. It might, even be, it might even be more hazardous to your health than cutting. Oh yeah, I definitely think it's more hazardous to your health than cutting. We know that cigarettes lead, can lead to cancer. Cutting often leads to just some scars on your arms or your legs or wherever you choose to do it. And I think, and later on in the book. Banjo finds a therapist who understands that. And so I wanted to reflect that too. Like I've had some criticism of the book only, well, only one person has criticized it, but she was criticizing that, you know, I was anti-meds and anti-psychiatry and anti-therapy, but that's not the case. When you read the book and you read it closely, you see that I am not at all. Like I am for whatever works for each person. And I think finding the right counselor is, and therapist can be life-saving. It's a matter of finding that one that that really gets you and really listens to you and isn't out there to fix you, but is out there to help you navigate your own well, this life. This is why the book is so important because there's a, a huge gap of um, this perspective in the world of, of uh, young adult fiction. You know, there, there aren't stories that really represent the trauma of psychiatric abuse as it impacts queer people and queer uh, teens and, and queer parents. And so, and there's a lot of queer teen parents out there, and that's something that doesn't get acknowledged. And I, and I think that when we have an issue that's kept in the shadows and is pushed away and isn't talked about, it gets surrounded by a lot of paternalism. People rely on authorities. They want to control 
the information flow. They want to just put out a certain kind of ideological message rather than giving people the benefit of figuring things out for themselves and respecting people's intelligence because you know teens are moving into adulthood and finding their own way in the world and they have their their capacity for being independent and for for leading their own lives has to be respected and so it's really important that we have these representations of the dark side and the negatives of the mental health establishment and 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 medicine and hospitals because that needs also to be part of the conversation. And I think because your work is groundbreaking and it's filling this gap, it really deserves to be recognized and read. And I understand that it's been nominated for some awards now. Is that right? Yes, it has. And like, so my book, I think one thing about my book is as far as I can tell, as far as my publisher has been able to tell, um, it appears that this is the very first YA novel that deals with uh, a queer teen parent. Like that just hasn't happened before. And I haven't read too many YA novels, and I've read a lot. Um, I'm actually not sure if I have read any that have dealt with uh, the reality of, of queer kids in the mental hospital. You know, that that's a, a huge theme. Like, you can pick up a good many YA books that have queer kids, or have kids, I should say, teenagers in the mental hospital. But I, I have not read one yet that that has uh, the, the theme that I have, that it doesn't is not up to necessarily people outside of yourself to cure you or heal you and there's not some magic pill or some magic therapist out there that's going to make it all better or in, in many YA books uh the teenagers go into the mental hospital and then they you know end up taking their own life and it's always portrayed as they didn't take their meds and so then they took their own life and yeah there's so much of the salvation narrative of it's the person is 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 manic or they're in their delusional world and then the, all these things happen and it seems fun for a while and there's the crash and then finally they're like ah okay the doctors were right i have to you know i have to be saved by by compliance and so so what you're saying is that your book is actually groundbreaking in two areas uh, one is uh, queer teens in the psychiatric system and the other is uh, queer queer teen parenting Right. Yeah. There, are, like I said, I don't think that there is another YA book out there um, that deals with queer teen parenting. And yeah, that was it was and that was also really it was also a big learning for me because I didn't know that much about this. So it's really great to find out more about it because it isn't it isn't talked about. I mean, isn't the the rates of pregnancy and and parenting is higher among queer teens than teens in in general? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Was, so I was a teen parent. I had uh, my first child at 18 and later came out as queer. And then uh, I back in the day, so probably, well, about the, 2003, I found this uh, internet uh, bulletin board called Hip Mama. And there's a magazine. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this have heard of Hip Mama. But back then it was, you know, pretty new. And I got on there and, and I met all these other teen parents. Um, some were still teenagers. Some were like me at the time. I was like in my late 20s, early 30s around that time. Um, and it was just so amazing to meet all of these teen moms and that I had, you know, I, I had been alone all this time. And then I started to find out because I was starting to come to terms with the fact that I was not straight. And then I start to find out that a lot of these teen moms were either queer at the time they got identified as queer at the time they got pregnant or later came out. As a matter of fact, my best friend, she had her first child at 16 
and we met on there and we came out within a year of each other. So I was like, I used to joke, it's like, oh, teen parenting makes you gay because it seemed like all the teen parents I knew turned out to, to be gay or queer identified. And then um, in May of 2015, a study came out and it stud- looked at uh, lesbian, gay and bisexual teens, uh, not queer identified, not trans or genderqueer, but uh, lesbian, gay and bisexual. And they studied like 10,000 kids um, in the years 2005, 2007, and 2009, and found that um, 13% of straight-identified girls became pregnant compared to 23% of lesbian and bisexual girls. So it turns out that it might be the other way around, that being queer <laughs> leads to, to teen parenthood. And uh, So how, what, do you, what do you make of those statistics? I mean, why do you think that that connection is there? I think there's a lot of factors, and some of them are touched on in the study, which was, uh, by the way, done by George Mason University, if anyone wants to look it up. It appeared in the American Journal of Public Health. Um, this, is a, this is an evidence-based interview. Yes, it is. Because <laughs> 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 people, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, that, yeah. people have questioned me on this so many times. And I'm <laughs> yeah, like, okay, yeah. first of all, it's my reality, because I don't always yeah. believe every study, but it's, it's the reality that I saw yeah. before this ever came out. But anyway... Um, I think the reasons, I mean, there's a million reasons, you know, um, I think queer kids oftentimes, uh, end up needing to use sex for survival and that might lead to pregnancy. Um, queer kids are overlooked when it comes to sex education and birth control. Oftentimes, you know, you go in and you say you're, you're gay or lesbian or, and they may not, you know, they may not even offer you birth control because they're not assuming that you would ever possibly sleep with somebody of the opposite gender. Um, queer kids get pregnant because they have sex. I mean, there's just a million different reasons. And I think another reason is that I'm going to assume that a lot of these lesbian, gay, and bisexual kids are also queer identified and may not be, um, you know, one end of the gender binary or the other. And if you're kind of in the middle of the gender binary and you're hanging out with somebody else who might be, you may not actually really think about it, uh, about pregnancy. In my book, Banjo's partner, the one that ends up taking their own life, was genderqueer, and they had been identified as male at birth. But Banjo doesn't think of this character, this this partner, Gray, as as male. It doesn't cross her mind really that this is, you know, that that she's having heterosex because she's not. They're both queer, and so it results in a pregnancy. And that was something I really wanted to explore in my book: is that you know, pregnancy is not just straight boy, straight girl, have sex, get pregnant. It, it's it's a lot more than that. Yeah, I mean, maybe the variable here is really about sexual empowerment, that in a homophobic and transphobic society, if you're a young queer person or lesbian or gay person, then you're just going to be in this world where your sexuality is so disempowered and so disconnected that maybe that is what contributes to um, the higher pregnancy rates. Yeah. And, and and like I said, I think it's, I think it's so many factors that we can't just say, Oh, this is the reason that queer kids are more likely to get pregnant. There's just so many different factors, but it's, you know, I, I think it's something that very few people realize. And the only reason I even became aware of it was because like I said, it was my reality and the reality of the people around me. Yeah. There's so many things that, that this book and our conversations is bringing up for me. I'm just I'm just so glad that the book exists. I mean, I'm I'm wondering what it would have been like 
you know, in Florida in the 70s, if there was anything on any radar, television, we didn't have the internet back then, but books, any, any, anything that was out there that could have validated my identity as a teen who was very aware of my attraction to both men and women, girls and boys, but nobody was in talking about it. And it was just, the response was just violence. It was just bullying. It was so much relentless, homophobic, bullying that was going on all around me. And so these little escape pathways, these little ways that people find each other and the books and the internet and finding organizations and having your own experience reflected. I mean, I really wonder if I had had that, if my own life course might've gone a very, very different direction because the the bullying and the isolation has, you know, I, I know directly contributed to the crisis and trauma and the difficulties that I've had in my life. And then know brought me into the psych hospital and so i'm just really realizing the importance of of what you've done here by creating that pathway and creating that way of connecting people and having their experience reflected and hopefully we can reduce the amount of violence and we can reduce the amount of trauma by changing the world and this is how this is how it happens the culture changes the books that we read change the books that are on the shelves the things that are available to us at the library that changes and then society is changing. That's essentially why I wrote the book. I like I have never seen myself reflected in any sort of media. Like Finding Hit Mama was a lifesaver because I f- saw other people like me and it gave me the space and the support to come out. Like, you know, I looking back, I, I knew I wasn't straight from the time I was really young. But and I guess that's another reason that queer kids might be more likely to get pregnant is like I had to prove that, you know, I wasn't, I, I wasn't, that I, I, that I was basically normal. I had been bullied. I'd been the shy kid. I'd never fit in. And so getting a boyfriend was like huge to me to prove like, no, I'm just like everybody else and getting pregnant. And, you know, and I chose to, to proceed with the pregnancy. I want to say one thing actually on that is I am adamantly pro-choice. The minute you write a book about a teenage parent, everyone thinks that you are somehow anti-choice, and I am not at all anti-choice. Um, I just believe that it's choice. If a teenager wants to proceed with their pregnancy, they should be supported 100%, just as if they were to choose to have an abortion. And I think that's one place the feminist feminist community often drops the ball is they jump right on the same bandwagon as everybody else in shaming, blaming, and, oh, my gosh, this is the worst thing you can do. You're going to ruin your life. And to me, that is not feminist. You need to – pro-choice is pro-choice, and that's period, the end. Yeah, because that's really a big double standard. If, if you're a certain age and you fit a certain kind of expectation, then, hey, it's celebrated. Oh, you're pregnant. Congratulations. You're going to be a, you're gonna be a mom. It's great. And But, hello, if you're, you know – on the other side of a certain line, the opposite kicks in. It's incredibly stigmatizing, and the messages and the education that goes on in society is really a put-down, which, of course, just drives people to be isolated, even more isolated and, and even more disempowered. And potentially find themselves in a mental health crisis. So, yeah. So one of the things that like kept me going on this book that made me feel like it needed to exist, because there was times I felt like it it was like, what am I doing? Like, this is nobody is going to want to read this book. And the truth is, it's not going to have probably the readership as a more mainstream book. 
the books need to exist that really reflect teenage life and that adults like to think that, you know, teenagers don't face these really huge um, and scary things in their life. Like, oh, we can't write about, you know, we can't write a story about a teenager who is a pregnant queer teen. We can't write a, a story about a teenager who's faced rape or molestation or drug abuse or any of these things that adults like to think that teenagers, you know, don't face. Or if the books are written, they're written kind of from the paternalistic uh, adult point of view that just wants to preach what's right or wrong. And you were mentioning before that there was a review that, that came out that basically was saying like, well, you know, it's a good book, but it's too anti-meds or it's too anti-psychiatry or it portrays psychiatry in, in a bad light. We'll actually talk to people who've been in psychiatric hospitals. <laughs> this is a real experience that really does happen to people. And there's horrible abuses and it's very dehumanizing for many people not 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 everybody obviously but for enough people that it needs to be recognized and reflected in the culture including young adult novels and that's why what you've done is so important a particular review you're talking about called the book bleak and i was like well sometimes when you're a teenager <laughs> your life is kind of bleak and and i don't think my life my book is bleak i mean it definitely is hard and there is a lot of bad stuff that happens, but there's also this underlying hopefulness and good stuff that happens. And I mean, I don't know. I think if you interviewed a hundred teens, 99 of them would say that they've had some pretty bleak moments in their life and maybe their parents haven't been completely aware of it, but yeah. And a, and a lot of them have been in psychiatric hospitals and had terrible experiences. So where are those books? And I, I would agree. I mean, I, I don't think this is a bleak book at all. I think it does something really wonderful, which is that it faces head on some of the horrors of what it is to be a young person, but then at the same time provides the actual way way out of that and, and the, the positive side of finding your identity, embracing who you are in a community of other people who've had that experience. And that's it happens in the book. And also it's something that happens by the act of you writing the book. You're making that more likely to come to realization. So I think that it's actually a very hopeful and very positive book, but not in a kind of a simplistic way, but in that it shows both dark and light. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it bleak at all. And again, I, I, one of the things that really struck me about it is you, your writing style is great. I felt like I was in a movie. I was being carried along in this incredibly vivid story. There's a couple of different timelines and I just got really connected and really interested in the characters. And I think that it does work for mainstream appeal. And I, I would be great if this was brought into a movie because it would make a great movie as well. And so the book is also this great window into something that's not talked about very much, which is teen parenting in general. So, so, so do you want to say a little bit more about that? So what are some of the other things that people should learn and know about teen parenting in society? Yeah, so um, I think the number one thing people need to know about teen parenting society is if you meet a teenager who tells you they're pregnant and is continuing their pregnancy, uh, what you need to say is congratulations, <laughs> not oh my gosh, or start telling them you know how their life is going to go awry, or you know offer them the names of an adoption agency, or um, or you know, ask them if they've considered abortion. If they are keeping the child, if they're keeping this pregnancy, if they're continuing it, the only thing you need to say is congratulations. I'm so excited for you. Wow, this baby's so lucky to have you as a parent. Those simple words 
could, can change everything. I mean, seriously, I don't think people realize one person being excited for a teenager having a baby can literally make or break their parenting. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people aren't aware of this. There's a, an organization called the National Campaign to End Teen and Unplanned Pregnancies. First of all, I think the title says everything. It should be the National Campaign to End Unplanned Pregnancies. Because, you know, that kind of encompasses everyone. If you're a teenager and you don't want to have a pregnancy, then, it, you know, but this, it focuses really strongly on ending teen pregnancy. And if you look at their site, it is actually ending unwed teen pregnancy. And it's government funded. It's very mainstream. And they had an ad campaign a few years back that was, uh, was posters of girls. And there were some boys, but I'm just going to focus on the girls for it right now. Um, and the girls would have pictures of like the word, like one of them features a girl with the word reject in red across her chest. Seeing that even now, like hurts me to see that because I'm a teen mom. And once you're a teen mom, you're, you're always a teen mom. It sets you so outside the mainstream. Um, and there, another thing that people don't realize is many people don't realize is back in the contract for America with Newt Gingrich. He actually uh, was promoting orphanages for the children of teenage parents. If a teenage parent needed any sort of government assistance, food stamps, medical, anything, his proposal was that their children go into orphanages. And, you know, there's magazine covers, uh, People Magazine, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, with, with you know, headlines, Children Having Children. And, and then there's the shows like 16 and Pregnant and Teen Mom. And they, you know, of course, they seek out the kids they think are the most likely to be sensationalist. And they portray all teen parents as like these kids. And it's just it's just such a harmful message that most people, I mean, think of, if you stop right now, whoever's listening right now, stop and think of the first word that comes to your mind when you say teen parent. It's probably it's probably a new word. But what could be more natural? I mean. You know, young people have been having kids since forever, so it's there's nothing and there's nothing inherently wrong with it. It's a natural. It's like literally a natural thing. It is a natural thing, and we are successful. We can be successful. There was a study that came out many years ago, but what they did was they followed uh, teenagers from similar socioeconomic backgrounds, and the the kids that ended up, the girls that ended up getting pregnant and continuing their pregnancy by the age of 30, we're actually doing better. Um, and by better, they are measuring it by a capitalist society, you know, financially and such than the, the kids who hadn't. And, you know, it may, in the short term, it may look like, okay, yeah, we need a lot of help. We might need government, uh, insurance. We might need food stamps. We might need different subsidies, but in the long term, if we get that help and we have people supporting us, we're going to do just fine. Teen parenthood is looked at through a capitalist eye. It's not looked at through a, a realistic eye. It's all about measuring what we can financially contribute to society. And so it's so important. And I, I think a lot of us aren't thinking about this. I mean, I, don't, I know I, I haven't thought about it enough. So thank you again for this book and this opportunity to uh, bring this this whole issue forward. Nina, do you want to you want to read some of some of the book, like some selections, some of the chapters, or something? Yeah, I'll I'll actually go ahead and read a, a little part here where she it, it kind of outlines some of the uh, microaggressions that teen parents 
face. So this is in the middle of the book, and um, I, I love the I love the word microaggression. I mean, where was that word when I needed it years ago? We didn't have that word, and we needed it, you know. Yeah, we didn't have that word. We're like, oh, we're just too <laughs> right, sensitive. Right, right. It wasn't happening. <laughs> there was no word for it, so it must not have been happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so this is chapter twelve, and I'll just read a couple pages. Mom pulled up to the women's clinic. Ready? No. It'll be okay, sweetie. I doubted that. We walked through the polished glass doors into a lavender room filled with overstuffed chairs in various pastel colors. The walls were covered in watercolor paintings of mothers and babies, most of them as sitting in soft focus flower gardens. We made our way to the check-in counter. The thin woman behind the desk smiled at Mom. Hello, she chirped. Mom returned her smile. My daughter has an appointment at 1.30 with Dr. McCann, Amanda Logan. As Mom said this, I realized I should probably be the one checking in. I suppose that would be the grown-up mom thing to do, but I stayed silent. The receptionist's gaze shifted from my mom to me. Her smile melted into stern judgment. The woman looked me up and down, her eyes resting just a moment too long on my chopped-up, scraggly hair, which had grown out into some sort of mad scientist style of a disaster before moving down to my watermelon belly sticking out under the men's shirt. She handed me a clipboard and pen. Please fill this out and return it to me when you're finished. Her voice was hard. Mom put her hand on my back as we made our way to two empty chairs. The room was filled with women, some with brand new infants in car seats, some with swollen bellies. A few had, what I assumed to be, husbands sitting next to them. All were much older than I was. I felt their eyes on me as we passed them. This sucks, I whispered to Mom. I feel like a freak. I know, baby. I've been there. Just try to ignore them. I filled out the paperwork and returned it to the desk. I heard a little boy say, Mommy, is that boy going to have a baby? My fingers dug into my palms. It didn't bother me that he thought I was a boy, because sometimes I totally felt like a boy. What bothered me is that girls like me didn't fit into this heteronormative, middle-class, shiny white world. I was too queer, too poor, too much in the middle of the gender binary, and too young. Did my baby even stand a chance? I made my way back to my seat, flopped down, and picked up one of the parenting magazines from the small table next to us. A blonde mom and her blonde son smiled back at me. Today's Most Amazing Moms was a feature story, followed by 14 Totally Awesome Breakfast Hacks for Toddlers to Teens, and Disneyland Planning Made Easy. I flipped through the pages. All the moms looked straight, and if not rich, definitely not poor. They were all at least ten years older than me with husbands and houses and all the other things that you were supposed to have to make sure your kids turned out okay. I would never be any of these women that smiled back at me, and my baby would never be one of these kids. Shame seemed to seep out of the magazine, up my fingers, and through my body. I felt sorry for my baby. She would be better off if I found some fancy couple to adopt her. She could have a mom and a dad and all the things this magazine said she needed. I flipped to an article titled, How to Help Your Teenager Make Good Choices. I leaned over and showed Mom. <laughs> Maybe you should have read this article. Mom looked at me with tired, sad eyes and sighed. Amanda Logan? A tiny woman called from the doorway. Mom and I stood. I heard the little boy say, See, Mommy, that boy has a baby in his tummy. The mom shushed him as my mom took my hand in hers, and we followed the nurse into the reality that I'd been trying so hard to avoid. That's great. No, that's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great book, Dean. It really is. Um, 
and, and I think you can hear, this is why I think it would make a great film is it's just so visual. I'm, I was right there. Your writing style is really, really very um, strong and, and, and present. And it really captures the, what that experience is. I mean, that image of the, the shame seeping from the pages of the magazine up her arm. Wow. That's what it's like. So there's, so there's the side of the book that really gets into the experience of teen parenting. Maybe do a reading of something from the book that um, brings in the psychiatry elements. Okay. Um, I'm going to do, I think I'm going to go for chapter nine, which is when uh, Banjo is getting released from the, from the hospital. The next morning, when I made my way to the dining room, Prue and Dylan weren't there. As I spooned soggy cereal into my mouth, I kept my eyes on the hallway, hoping to see them, but they never appeared. They must have been released early that morning. I didn't even get to say goodbye. What if I never saw either of them again? Realizing I was alone in my mental ward nightmare sent that familiar panic racing through my body. I craved a razor blade. I wanted to go home. I missed Rags and my mom and Sam and Henry, even James. I finished my cereal only because I knew the kid needed it, and then I went back to the day room. I curled up on the scratchy vomit couch, closed my eyes, and tried not to think or feel. Banjo Logan? I looked up. Come with me, Gorilla Nurse said. I followed him to Dr. Jack's office. My heart was pounding in my ears. My hands and arms felt thick and heavy like tree trunks. My lungs shrank, only allowing me to take shallow breaths. I dug my fingernails into my palms, trying desperately to ground myself with the pain. It wasn't working. The door was open and he waved me in. The nurse closed the door as he left to go back to the main room. Dr. Jack motioned for me to take a seat in one of his fancy chairs. He didn't waste time smiling. Miss Logan, I'm prepared, I'm prepared to release you today, but first we need to discuss your treatment plan. Translation, your insurance has run out. He laid his hand down on a file folder that rested on his polished desk. As we have discussed previously, it's my view that you have bipolar disorder. Are you clear on what that means? He didn't wait for me to answer. If left untreated, this disorder can become quite serious. Statistics show that 25 to 50% of people with bipolar disorder will attempt suicide. You don't want a repeat of the incident that caused you to land here, now do you? But I keep telling you I didn't try to kill myself, I protested, even though I knew I shouldn't. Miss Logan, would you like to go home today? Prue's voice was in my head. Just go along with whatever he says. Yes, I said. Okay, good. Then we're on the same page. He smiled his big, shiny smile. Because of your pregnancy, I feel like continuing the Seroquel is an awesome choice for you. Studies show a low risk to the fetus, and the side effects for you should be pretty minimal. Once the baby is born, we can discuss other possible medications. I'm assuming you aren't going to breastfeed? Of course he assumes I'm not going to breastfeed. He probably assumes I'll fill the kid's bottle with chocolate milk or Kool-Aid. I remained silent. That line from every cop show I've ever seen popped into my head. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. His voice was like a middle school math teacher as it droned on patiently, explaining to me that being crazy was much more dangerous for my baby than a tiny little pill. He continued to educate me on the risk of suicide and psychosis in the unmedicated bipolar. I guess I was about to turn from Banjo Logan, the unmedicated bipolar, into Banjo Logan, the medicated bipolar. Lucky me! The way Dr. Jack put it, because I was now Banjo Logan the medicated bipolar, 
I no longer had to worry about growing up to be that person stumbling down the street with my grocery cart, thinking I was Jesus as I ranted on about the CIA and scaring people while my kid wasted away in foster care. A few minutes later, there was a knock on the door. Dr. Jack interrupted his little speech. Come in. It was Mom. She glanced at me and then quickly looked away. Her eyes were swollen and her face was saggy. Dr. Jack motioned for her to have a seat and then proceeded to explain it all to her. Her face went red and she leaned over Dr. Jack's desk. Are you kidding me? What exactly is wrong with you people? She's pregnant. She's been through hell. Medication? Absolutely not. No way. Mom had some of her fire back and that sent a rush of calm through me. My daughter does not need to be medicated. I will not have my grandbaby's life risked by your quick fix mentality. I should have known that bringing her here to you would be a tragic mistake. Cancel the prescription. When I heard her call this kid her grandbaby, I felt my throat close up. Dr. Jack put his hand on his desk. Ms. Logan, I understand your concerns, but if your daughter does not comply with the terms of her release, I can, and will, seek a court order to have her forcibly medicated. Please don't make me do that. He smiled thinly. You can't forcibly medicate her in this case. I know my rights, sir, Mom countered. He ignored her and turned to me. Banjo, if I release you, are you going to take your medications as prescribed? I nodded. I knew the drill. He looked at Mom, a smug smile spreading like a disease across his face. All right, then. Good. Now I would also like to have you talk see a talk therapist. You'll be provided with a list of my colleagues when you check out. Anyone on that list will be perfectly suitable. The idea of there being other people like Dr. Jack in the world made me shudder. He stood and went to the polished oak file cabinet in the corner and rifled through it for a minute before producing a single sheet of paper. Banjo, have you ever heard of a no-suicide contract? Mom groaned loudly. Dr. Jack shot her a look. He scribbled my name in the blank space at the top of the sheet, wrote the date, and signed it. So, a no-suicide contract is a document, a contract, that we both signed stating that when we release you, you promise to stay alive. He cleared his throat. I, Amanda Logan, hereby agree that I will not harm myself in any way, attempt suicide, or die by suicide. Furthermore, I agree that I will take the following actions, actions if I am ever suicidal. 1. I will remind myself that I can never under any circumstances, harm myself in any way, attempt suicide, or die by suicide. 2. I will call 911 if I believe that I am in immediate danger of harming myself. 3. I will call any and all of the following numbers if I am not in immediate danger of harming myself, but have suicidal thoughts. The numbers are down at the bottom, including my cell number. He slid the paper towards me. You need to sign there at the bottom. I dug my nails into my palms. So, if I kill myself, you're going to sue me? <laughs> exactly. How do you enforce a no, how do you enforce a no harm contract? Yeah, it's, it's it brings back a lot of memories and that's that's the that's the horror of the mental health system is that that scenario that you painted is is pretty typical and happens over and over and over again. Thousands and thousands of of people experience this all the time and not everybody has bad experiences and not every doctor is like Dr. Jack, it's not always like this, but it does happen. It happens way too much. It does. And uh, I th a lot of people think the suicide, no suicide contract is a joke, but that is an actual no suicide contract that my daughter was once asked to sign. So 
Oh, I was asked. I was asked to sign yeah. a suicide <laughs> contract as well. So I, I know it's it's like uh, part of the crazy Alice in Wonderland logic that you're exposed to in there. <laughs> like nothing so. has made you want to stay alive up to this point, but this piece of paper, this contract, is going to be the magic pill. Yeah, yeah. And actually, the, there has been a lot of research that backs that up. That suicide contracts don't work. They don't actually. They're not actually helpful as a therapeutic tool overall in terms of the research. So. So Nina, we're just about out of time. So give people the contact information and how they can find your website and everything, especially also if they want to know about events, the readings and things in their area around the book. Yeah, so if you guys want to get in touch with me, uh, you can email me at npackabush at gmail.com. That's N-P-A-C-K-E-B-U-S-H. You can find me on Facebook and um you can also check out my website, ninapackabush.com. Again, the last name is P-A-C-K-E-B-U-S-H. You can find my book by just Googling girls like me, Nina Packabush. You definitely want to put in my name when you do the Google search because there are a couple other books um, by the same name. But you'll, be, you'll know mine because mine has uh, the queer pregnant teenager on the front. Yeah, and I'll also be doing a webinar for the Icarus Project on teen parenthood, so you can look for that. I'll be doing readings um, across the country, so you can also check out my website, see if there's one coming near you, or if you'd like me to and come and do a reading in your city, just uh, drop me an email, and we can set that up. So yeah, look forward to hearing from people. Nina Packabush, thanks so much for joining us today as a guest on Madness Radio, and thank you so much also for being the producer of Madness Radio. Thanks, Will. I look forward to re-listening to this and <laughs> editing it to make me sound good. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Nina Packbush. She's a queer-identified grown-up teen mom, a young adult fiction writer, a zine maker, and a longtime mental health advocate. She's also the producer of Madness Radio and the author of the new young adult book, Girls Like Me, published by Bedazzled Inc., that's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices. Host is Will Hall and producer is Nina Packabush. Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM and the Pacifica Network, and shows are archived online at madnessradio.net. Mm-hmm.